0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I am so pleased to welcome to the show today Ruchi Bomek, Vice President of Public Policy at Netflix. In her current role, Ruchi develops strategy and oversees the company's engagement with a broad range of stakeholders in the U.S. and Canada. And she has also held leadership roles in policy and government affairs at Pepsi and the global consulting firm Ernst & Young. But before all that, she was a staffer. I got to know Ruchi when she was deputy cabinet secretary in the Obama White House, in which she served for almost five years. In addition to that role in cabinet affairs, she also served on the White House Council for Women and Girls, and she developed policy proposals as a staff member within the office of the chief of staff. Before getting to the White House, Rucci was a Senate staffer. She was a Judiciary and Education Counsel for Senator Ron Wyden, and then she was Legislative Director and Counsel for then-Senator Obama. Before that, she also worked in the nonprofit sector as an attorney for the Brady Campaign, then known as the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence. I am so happy to be able to present this conversation with Rucci to you. Rucci and I recorded this conversation on Monday, August 22nd. I hope you enjoy it. Ruchi Bomek, welcome to Staffer.
1: Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor and privilege to be part of your amazing podcast.
0: The honor and privilege is all mine. So thank you truly for joining us. Um, As you may know, uh, on this podcast, I like to talk to folks who um, have had amazing careers in public service and also done really interesting things uh, elsewhere. And where I like to start is at the beginning, uh, just learning a little bit about where they grew up and what home life was like. So can you start at the beginning for us?
1: Yeah, no, I um, I was born in East Lansing, Michigan, but uh, quickly my family moved to Nashville, Tennessee. So I consider myself a Nashvillian first and foremost. Okay. Um, very proud to be from Nashville. I was raised by um, my parents who are immigrants from India and my, we just recently lost my father, so still still grieving um, his passing, but he and uh, my mom are just incredible people who came to this country. They often joked with like $40 in their pockets. Um, they came for graduate school. My dad got his PhD up in Michigan State and um, raised me and my sister in Nashville. And I just think we had one of those really idyllic childhoods, you know, playing out in the backyard, you know, hanging out with friends. We were joking. We would just, you know, the kids and the dogs just ran free in the neighborhoods <laughs> of Nashville, um, which it's only now that I realize as I, I walk my dog and refuse to let the thing off leash, I'm like, oh, okay, that was special. That was special yeah. times. Um, so grew up in Nashville, uh, still go back. My mom is still there. I went to Yale University for college. Um, which was a great experience. Uh, New Haven and Nashville are very different in many ways. Um, yes, they are. But uh, after college, I went to law school. I went to UVA in Charlottesville. So I feel very lucky to have been in some pretty awesome college towns. Um, and then, you know, I went after law school, I actually practiced law for uh, – about nine months at a law firm ah, Okay. and I actually won an award at one of my law school reunions for having spent the shortest amount of time in a law firm. <laughs> I didn't know that it was a race. It was like a race to the bottom and I won it. Um, but, uh, I, uh, you know, not to get too deep into things, but I kind of realized like corporate law was not for me. I learned that early on and I kind of made a, a bit of a, a pivot into uh, public policy.
0: So let me ask you uh, about that law school um, experience. I, I, like you, I'm a non-practicing attorney uh, Mm -hmm. and I often get asked by young people who are considering law school, you know, should I go? What were the pros and cons? You probably get asked all the time. What's your answer?
1: You know, I loved law school and I do not, I mean, I'm very grateful for that experience and for what law school has taught me. What I tell people is don't go to law school if you don't intend to practice law, Um, because I think there's a lot of people in D.C. especially who think, well, I'll go to law school, but then I'm going to go to the Hill. Well, the truth is, and you and I both know this, you can go straight to the Hill or you can go get a a master's degree or go to public policy degree. Um, There's a lot of ways short of going to law school to get to the Hill. So that's my response.
0: Yeah, and so how did you come to public policy? Is that something? I mean, were you interested in current events and politics growing up? Was that something discussed around you know the how the dining room table, yeah. or did that you come to that later in life?
1: Yeah. No, you know what? It's only in as I've grown older that I can kind of look back and appreciate just how ingrained um, the whole world of policy and politics was in my life. I Actually, my grandfather was a member of parliament in India. And oh, wow. at the time of his death, he was um, the, basically the equivalent of an attorney general for the state of West Bengal. So okay. I realized I come by politics and policy um, through blood. And uh, the interest in public policy, both of my parents were social scientists. We talked about social issues and how do you make change and, you know, fairness and justice. And that was that was very much um, dinnertime conversation. And, you know, I guess it's no surprise that those were always issues that were very interesting to me and what drove me really to law school, which was how can you use a law degree to make change?
0: Yep. So after law school, you spend some time in a law firm. You you figure out that that's not the place for you or the, the law firm is not a place for you. And you want to get into public policy. I know you worked on Capitol Hill, I think your first job, uh, for Senator Ron Wyden, uh, where you were his counsel on judiciary and education matters. So how did you make that transition?
1: Well, I actually, you know, I I didn't um, leave the law firm uh, fully or didn't leave the practice of law um, immediately. I was at the law firm and um, I, I just sort of looked around. I was doing trade law, which I still find kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, I realized like a lot of the cases that I was working on were actually older than I was at the time. And I said to myself, you know, in 25 years, do I want to be working on the same exact, you know, issue? And the answer was no, I did not. Yeah. Um, so I started looking for public policy law jobs. And I ended up at the Brady Center to prevent gun violence. Sarah Uh and Jim Brady's gun violence prevention group. And I was a litigator there. I was actually a staff attorney. So I was still practicing law um, and doing depositions, litigation. Um, But the, the interesting part for me was working with the Hill. I was able to work with, you know, Senate staffers and senators on developing legislative answers. And that was the piece that became really interesting to me. And so that was my first real exposure to what the Hill and what a job on the Hill could, could offer. And that drove me to start looking um, for for some legal, you know, some council roles on the Hill.
0: I know uh, after you worked for Senator Wyden, you then um, worked for the person everybody who wanted to work for uh, following the 2004 election. Uh, Barack Obama was elected to the Senate from Illinois. And... So many people who now are like household political names worked for then-Senator Obama. People like Pete Rouse, Robert Gibbs, Alyssa Mastromonaco, Chris Liu, and many, many others. You were hired to be his legislative director and legislative counsel. So my question for you is, knowing how stiff the competition was for every job position in that office— when you went in for that interview or a series of interviews, what was your pitch?
1: That is such a great question. So, you know, interestingly, and Jim, I'm just going to date myself, but I don't know if you remember. But back in the day when a new senator was elected, the way to apply for those jobs was via cardboard boxes, that were yes. set up in the basement of Dirksen. I mean, I to even think that that was like. So, one <laughs> right. thing I always R- tell resumes people resumes were was printed no- on
0: papyrus, they, they just <laughs> rolled up in scrolls, placed in.
1: They were written with <laughs> a, a feather pen. Um, and so, I often tell people, I'm like, there was no world where I was going to drop my resume. I had a job, right? I wasn't like, God, if Senator Wyden had seen me like dropping a resume into a p- carbo, I would have. Been mortified, so I did not do that, um, and I'm forever grateful for the fact that um, Pete Rouse reached out to me. So Pete was had been named early on as the uh, you know chief of staff for the incoming senator, and he reached out, and um, that's one of those things where you realize like you know whatever you do in life and whatever you're working on, people are watching and paying attention, even if you're not conscious of it. So I had done a lot of work with you know the majority leader Daschle's office and got to know Pete, you know. Somewhat through that, right? I was still just a, a, a staffer, um, and so he had reached out. And so going into that meeting uh, with Senator Obama, newly elected Senator Obama, um, I, you know, like everyone else, I knew the speech, the you know amazing speech at the convention, and I had crammed "Dreams from My Father" the night before literally like it was an exam I did not finish the book but I, cr- I read as much as I could in one night and um, so my pitch honestly I-, I think going into it there was low stakes in the sense that I was like oh this will be a good conversation I'll get to know him and then we hit it off so well that it went from a relatively low stakes conversation to at the end of it I was like oh my gosh I want this job And um, so maybe my pitch was just enthusiasm, but there really was just like, you know, and I'm so grateful because I got to meet, you know, the newly elected senator. It was in Dashiell's office uh, in November, just weeks after he was elected. And, you know, so we were able to develop a friendship. But I didn't have, believe me, I didn't have any secret weapon that I knew, like, this is what's going to get me across. But it helped a lot to have Pete Rouse in your corner. I I think that's just a... A rule for life. If you can get Pete in your corner, (laughs) you're doing pretty well.
0: Yes. And and they're both, I mean, both very discerning people, uh, discerning about staff as as, you know, along with everything else. Um, but so president Obama in the white house and the white and the Obama white house had the the reputation of no drama Obama, right? That there was a, a good Mm -hmm. working relationship among the staff and with the member. Um, and it wasn't chaotic. At the same time, I also know, you know, newly elected Senate offices, House offices, they can be a bit chaotic because transitions are just difficult and people are learning to gel with one another, et cetera. So what were those early days like?
1: You know, I I became quick, I quickly became the utility infielder um, because we were understaffed. And coming from Senator Wyden's office, I had the experience of working on a huge swath of issues as as you know uh states you know senate offices are are afforded budget based on population so at the time you know oregon and still isn't a high populated highly populated state so the budget was low so as a staffer i was doing everything from like defense intelligence homeland security to housing welfare Trade, I mean, it was a huge swath of issues. Wow. And so, coming into the, the early, he- you know, heady days of a newly elected senator, I had background in a wide variety of issues. So, I could go and staff him on foreign relations, even though I wasn't ultimately going to be the foreign relations staffer. I could staff him on veterans' issues because I had done that. So, t- I just had a lot of um, background and knowledge that truly served me well. And then ultimately, when I was a lo- legislative director, it was just sort of this seamless um, opportunity because I just had that real broad exposure.
0: Yeah. Well, OK. So speaking of that broad policy exposure, when President Obama was elected, uh, he asked you to serve in the office for policy within the chief of staff's office. And you you later uh played another role as as Deputy Cabinet Secretary, which I also want to uh, ask you about. But that policy within the White House is discussed at a few, I mean, all, throughout the White House, but there are a couple of different components that deal with policy. There's the Domestic mm-hmm. Policy Council, there's the National Economic Council, and there's the office within the, the Chief of Staff's office that also handles policy. For those who are unfamiliar, how do those you know three components, and perhaps some others? interrelate with one
1: another? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, it probably depends on where you're sitting. But since I came from the office of the chief of staff, I will tell you that my, um, I think the best structure has the chief of staff's office at the top overseeing the National Security Council, the National Economic Council, and the Domestic Policy Council. And now, in the Biden administration, there is a gender policy council, right? So one more policy council to the mix. Um, The the reason being not that you are going to override necessarily what comes out of the NEC or the DPC, but you really can cut across all the verticals in the best way possible. I think that's, the the White House is designed in a pretty remarkable fashion um, and has has proven to be able to withstand even the most... uh, (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, disruptive of, of leaders. So, you know, as uh, the special assistant, the president for policy, which is one of those titles that means nothing outside of our conversation right now, <laughs> but in <laughs> that role, that meant I had the luck, you know, the actually the great pleasure of coordinating deeply with, you know, the NEC and the DPC to use the acronyms um, and as well as actually the NSC as well. And that's where my background in, um, homeland Security and defense issues served me very well.
0: Yeah. Um, after serving in that role for a, a couple of years, as I mentioned, you became the Deputy Cabinet Secretary. Um, I I love that component within the White House. I think it's so interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that office does? And specifically, one of the things I'm I'm wondering about is. The I mean, the public, when they see a cabinet meeting, they're only periodic, right? They see a few minutes of that cabinet meeting, typically, where the cameras are allowed in, they do a spray, they, they, they report a question or two. Um, how does that office, in coordination with the president, decide when a cabinet meeting is appropriate? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, great question. So I always joke, you know, the... Deputy Assistant to the President for, or Deputy Cabinet Secretary is one of those jobs I never knew existed until I got to the White House. And yet, at the same time, it's one of the best jobs I think I'll ever have. Um, I'm going to give a lot of credit to Chris Liu, whom you mentioned at the top. He came in as Cabinet Secretary for uh, President Obama uh, when we first got into the White House and really established a very strong team and operating model. The cabinet cabinet secretary is, by design, the president's chief liaison with the cabinet members. And in some ways, that might seem sort of superficial, like, oh, well, of course, isn't he talking to them all the time? Actually, you know, each cabinet member is overseeing a massive organization. You know, DOD alone is like a small country. So... Having someone within the White House actually engage, not just at that top-to-top level, but actually understand what is happening and across all the agencies, again cutting across the verticals, and ensuring that the the president's agenda is being translated and vice versa. Like you know, if there's an issue that USDA is managing, I'll use drought as an example, that that is being carried up as well. That it is an amazing sort of um, point of connection. And to your, you know, one of the coolest things, and you just mentioned it, that we got to do was basically set the agenda for the president's cabinet meetings. And um, and again, you know, what happens at the top of those cabinet meetings and when to have them? The truth is, at some level, you want it just to make sure that there's a normal cadence, right? A president can get really busy. And, you know, every once in a while, it's like, well, do, we just had a cabinet meeting. Do We have to have another one. Well, actually, no, you need to have one. Um, and it, and it's important. I mean, as much as it seems sort of like a formality, the truth is it really is important to get that group of leaders in the same room um, and all communicating at the same time. Um, yep. And so deciding when to have one, it's it kind of is, you know, being that important point of connection, we were the main, I mean... I'm going to back up here. We served as an important sort of radar system on critical issues. um, Ones that might not be top of the news, but from a governmental perspective, are really critical. And helping the White House engage on those issues. uh, One thing I did was set up a drought commission. I mean, think about, that seems, I mean, obviously now we've been in drought for so long, it's really serious. But back then, in the 2010s, it was still like the super droughts were still sort of a new thing. How could yeah. a White House manage that that kind of disaster? Do you leave it to just the one agency that might view itself as most, you know, relevant, which would be USDA? Or do you try to bring the entire, you know, weight of the government behind the issue? I'm always going to, yeah. if it's a severe, serious enough issue, the latter is always a really good way to go. And so yeah. it... You know, I think the cabinet secretary can play an amazing role and is a tremendous force multiplier in what is an otherwise very short staffed. I mean, you know this. White Houses are not huge staffs.
0: Thin. Very thin.
1: And so having a cabinet uh, secretary and that that team be really high quality, high performing, um, you can have such a different make such a difference uh, on behalf of an administration.
0: So let me ask you this. Um, there's clearly the role of, of coordination, right? Being deep inside different agencies and knowing what's going on so that you can be that liaison informing the White House mm-hmm. and also bringing to bear, you know, the, the resources that a White House has to bear. Um, mm-hmm. There's also, you know, leading, right? When there's a, a White House priority to the extent that that priority can be driven down through the agencies that we, you know cabinet affairs is the is the nexus. There's also this element of troubleshooting, right? Sometimes bad things happen, things that, you know, they go sideways somewhere in the government. And if it lands on the front page of the Post, I imagine there are times when, you know, you walked into a meeting and people are looking at you at point thinking, Ruchi, what happened here? How, how much did, did you have to deal with things, you know, that weren't policy oriented necessarily, but they were like political troubles that needed to be run to ground and solved.
1: Uh, I did quite a bit of that. I think um, it, you know, you think about when you come from a Senate office or a House office, you have, you're very familiar with constituent services. And um, I often use that as a frame for so much of what I do in life, right? Like, I'm always dealing with constituents with clients, and how do I tend to them and provide them with the services they need? That I I sort of try to look at it from that angle as opposed to stopping people from doing dumb things, which is sometimes at base what you're trying to do. Um, There were some instances where things broke that I was told were not going to break, and um, I had to go and ask cabinet members, what happened. And, you know, it's like funny. News wise. You mean
0: like you mean like the news broke news when wise. it was supposed oh, yeah. to be embargoed? Sorry. Ah, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. No, okay. Something yeah.
1: was embargoed or something wasn't supposed to happen. That's the okay. worst case scenario. When someone yeah. said, no, we are not doing that, when in fact, they were going to do that and then it Ooh. became a news. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so <laughs> dealing bad. with those, um, you know, I think it helps to have, well, um, let me back up. I think, um, that's inevitable for any administration. Any administration is going to have a moment when something that wasn't supposed to happen happens. Um, and I think the one thing I brought to my role that really helped me was I always sort of thought, what was the worst thing that was going to happen to me? And if it was fired, okay, I'll get fired for something. But, it, you know, if that's the worst, like, I'll, I can survive that, right? Like, I just sort of think I just, I, I wanted to manage the issue, but I never took myself so seriously that I kind of lost my mind over something. Believe me, I had a lot of rough conversations um, with a lot of people, but um, it, I, I think, and I hope that I sort of ended up as friends with these people, even if it was a top, tough conversation.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, a question that I normally save until the end, Um, I like to ask people about mistakes that they made and what they learned from it, how they recovered. So, you know, was there a time in your public service, White House or, you know, Capitol Hill, where you just screwed something up and you had to fix it? and, And how did you do so?
1: That's a good question. Maybe I've just like sort of erased all those memories Um, from my mind, um, you know,
0: (laughs) they're too painful.
1: (laughs) They're too painful. I'm trying to, and it's not to say I've never made a mistake. It's more that I never, I just never felt like it was such a, because I just sort of viewed it as like, well, okay, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I mean, I say that there were like, there were plenty of issues we dealt with, there, there were some really bad things that were happening. I mean, when we dealt with uh, Deepwater Horizon um, mm-hmm. and, you know, watching just millions of gallons of oil spew into the, the Gulf of Mexico and people's livelihoods were at stake. Um, yeah, there was a lot at stake, but I think I never put myself as sort of first and foremost in the, as, a, as the problem or, or as, the, as the, my career was never my biggest concern. It was mm-hmm. always like, "What's our our mission? What's the project we're working on?" Um, so, I, I mean, I can't believe I can't think of a single mistake. It just shows you the power no. of, of denial. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, let me ask. Let me ask the flip side of this uh, question, which is, I mean, you spent so much time in public service and at, at such high levels. What did you have a moment where it gave you chills because of what? you know, you're a part of making happen?
1: That's a great question. And I, I have to thank um, both Senator Wyden and, and Barack Obama um, for really taking time to point out these these moments. When I was a staffer to Senator Wyden, we had been working on a massive data mining um, or stopping a massive data mining effort that the Department of Defense was undertaking uh, and we succeeded in getting it defunded and killed. And it was front page of the New York Times, and I was a young staffer, and, like, you know, you kind of just sort of are doing your job, and you sort of start taking things for granted. And um, Senator Wyden was going to the floor that night to make a speech. I didn't even have a jacket. At the time, and probably still, you had to wear a, you had to wear a jacket. To be on the floor of the Senate, I didn't or a dress, and I wasn't wearing a dress, so I had to borrow somebody's jacket. I looked ridiculous because it did not look, it did not go with my outfit. Um, And as I was walking, Senator Wyden took time. He said, "You know, Ruchi, this is a big deal. Like you are stop, we are stopping the the sort of signature project of this administration. That doesn't happen often." And I just remember thinking, like, "Oh, thank you for," because he gave me that that gift of perspective at that moment. And I think similarly. Um, and Jim you may have been I think you were probably a part of this when we passed the Affordable Care Act and we got a call and that was like right after Easter Um, we had a call like can you come to the White House and we all watched you know with President Obama and Vice President Biden in the Roosevelt Room the the House vote and that was a moment where you just, you you could take yourself out of that, out of your body for a second and say, okay, I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life. And I'm so grateful yeah. that, you know, Senator Obama or President Obama invited us and had us had us all watch together and really share that moment and then took us up into the residence, which doesn't happen, right? So That's right. I feel like, yeah, I've been part of things that I'm just so grateful for to give me some greater perspective because otherwise it's too easy to just lose yourself in the day to day and miss those miss the magnitude of what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Well, those moments are what, you know, motivate people when they get into politics and public service, right? You imagine yourself working on something and then ultimately getting the payoff and it can be years. And, you know, if you work on 10 things, you're lucky if you get two of those moments, right? We know how hard it is. To get the, I've you know the the chills down your spine moment, um, when young people come to you and ask, okay, like I, I'm interested in this. Yeah, I'd like to work in in politics and government. What is the advice you give them for a career in public service?
1: Well, I always say, and you know, the beauty of a hill career is you don't have to have the logic um you can actually go and we both have friends i know there's the amazing stories of our colleagues who started as interns and are now the chiefs of staff to right. major leaders um and that is that is a the kind of growth trajectory that i think is only available uh, on the hill and um i didn't have that i was already a lawyer when i came to the hill but um, I really advise people, particularly young people, like it's an amazing place. the energy um, I think it, it you know it's lost a little bit of its luster because of the political dynamics of today and the, the just sort of the partisan rancor and the unreasonable behavior on certain on behalf of certain members. but um, I think still at its heart it's just an amazing opportunity to work with like-minded or er- or to work with people who have the energy and interest in public policy. They might not agree with your yes. politics, but um, you can have, you're just, the energy is, un, you know, incomparable. Um, and yep. the opportunities for growth and learning, I worked on things, um, you know, when I was like a young staffer in Senator Wyden's office, we, I was meeting with CEOs of massive companies on different bills, like, because they have to talk to the staff. They like to think, everybody thinks they're just going to talk to the senator, but I'm like, if you want something done, then you need to answer my technical questions because I'm the person who's going to be writing the legislation. And, you know, you can't get that. You can't get that. I've worked in corporate settings. They're not sending junior staff to meet with the CEO.
0: So, Ruchi, you have advised CEOs at EY, at Pepsi, now at Netflix, you have also advised senators and and a president. Are there similarities from that first set of experiences, you know, that you had in government that you've transferred to the private sector, um, and and how are those two sets of principles different as well?
1: That's a great question. I think one thing I learned um, from my time on the hill that really helped me in my private sector work is finding out that, you know, principals, if you will, um, actually appreciate good advice. And good advice isn't always the advice that's easy to give. It's not always good news. And so being open and willing to be the person who um, I often call it the skunk at the garden party. Uh, I, I feel like I've made a career of being the skunk at the garden party and, um, calling out challenges, uh, raising issues and, and feeling comfortable doing that with, with CEOs, um, as well as with the president or, or senators, um, has really served me well. And I think if there's any difference between those sets of, uh, individuals, um, I think the fundamentals are the same, because if you get to a certain level, uh, whether you're the CEO of a big company or the president of the United States, um, you often are surrounded by people who don't want to tell you bad news. And so they do appreciate being, you know, being challenging, being honest and being authentic. And it's great because I don't really know what else to be. Um, but it, it's, it's been a really great lesson, and I think more people should, should take it t- take heed uh, because just telling people what they want to hear isn't necessarily doing them a, a service.
0: Well, and you know you're in a, a good leadership culture when the boss, the principal, surrounds herself, himself with people who can share the bad news. Right. Because, right, if those people who share bad news get shown the door, pretty soon all you're left with is people who are saying, yeah, boss.
1: Great right. job, boss. Right. And, right. and as a boss, I think it's really been instructive to recognize that I have to remind people when I say something, it's not because I expect them to agree with me. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I often say, like, no thumb on the scale. What do you think? Um, because I need people's honest opinion. And if everyone's always agreeing with me, something's wrong.
0: I like that phrase, no thumb on the scale, sort of giving people the permission at the outset, um, right, to give their most candid assessment of whatever the situation is. Okay, so I mentioned you are now at Netflix, a company everyone knows. Uh, Most everyone I know uh, relies on Netflix (laughs) every week for their personal entertainment. So my most important question for you is, what is your favorite program on Netflix?
1: Uh, That's easy. So my 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 top favorite and the new season just started this this August is Never Have I Ever. It's an amazing series created by Mindy Kaling and it chronicles an uh, Indian American uh, teenager through her challenging high school years. And I often tell people this is the first time I ever saw my life experience ever reflected, Um, you know, so it took a lot of years for that to happen. Uh, but I'm really grateful that, that Netflix and, and Mindy work together to put together such a, it's, it's a great show and, and it does, you don't have to be Indian American to love it.
0: I've heard great things about it and read great things about it. I have not seen it, but she's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, what, a, I mean, what a talent who's just yeah. exploded, right? Like a, a, a character on one show that everyone knew and then it just was a rocket ship. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, Uh, I I wanna ask you, I wanna go back to staffers for a minute. My final two questions for you. One, Mm -hmm. what in your mind separates the great staffers from the very, very good?
1: Great question. And, um, you know, I think you and I are both really fortunate that we worked with a lot of great staffers. Um, And what separates them from, from the good ones, I think, is at the end of the day, they know that their work. Is not about themselves. They didn't take themselves too seriously. And, uh, you know, all of my favorites, you know, colleagues and, you know, former staffers are all the ones where we realize like, hey, we're just in it for the work, Um, not to build up our profiles, not for our egos. And those are the people you wanted to work with. And honestly, at the end of the day, I think those are the people who got the most done because they were in it for the right reasons.
0: Yep. I love that. OK, so my final question for you, uh, I have this fantasy that one day I will be able to raise the funds and get all the permitting <laughs> to put a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National Mall and I'll take nominations uh, for who belongs in the Staffer Hall of Fame. So, Ruchi Bowman, who would you nominate?
1: OK, well, this is my this is this seems obvious, although maybe he's, he doesn't qualify as a staffer. But um, isn't Pete Rouse Basically,
0: oh, yeah, the he's world's in there.
1: greatest. I mean, he's a goat. No question. Yes,
0: you're right. The, and, yes. and
1: what I loved about Pete, and just to get to my previous point, it was never about Pete. He mm-hmm. worked, whether it was for Majority Leader Daschle, whether it was for Senator Barack Obama, whether it was for President Barack Obama, um, you know, chief of staff to majority leaders and presidents. And at the end of the day, I always loved that his favorite group of people was always the interns um he always wanted to understand what do they need how could he help them and i I think the legion of pete fans in dc and really across i mean across the globe let's be frank are 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 many uh thousands and it's because he just always got it you know this is about helping people um and he provided his bosses with the the, the world's greatest service but he also for those of us who were lucky enough to work for him um he provided us with tremendous insight and um so yeah
0: he's
1: in it he is it. Let's uh, he is honest. in it
0: uh the statue <laughs> is being commissioned right now uh, he's absolutely in it um Ruchi, I cannot thank you enough for um, this interview, your time, and your insights today. We got through some technical difficulties. Um, we we had a good conversation. And I'm just, uh, I've always been an admirer of yours since we crossed paths in the White House. And I've um, I've just really benefited from uh, talking with you today, and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Jim. It was so great to be here. And, and thank you for this service because, look, We know this is a tremendous career opportunity for a lot of young people, and I hope they they consider it. It's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to have fun. um, And it's an opportunity really to make friends that you will keep for the rest of your lives.
0: Amen to that. Well put. We'll end it there. Thank you, Ruchi. Thank you. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.